I'm Jeff Cohen. Rabbi Mark Wilds and his wife Jill co-founded Manhattan Jewish Experience, or MJE as it's known, more than 20 years ago. What started as a beginner's Hebrew class with 18 attendees has blossomed into an organization which today draws in over 20,000 annual attendees to classes, events, Shabbos meals, and more. Rabbi Wilds is here today to talk about both MJE and his own Jewish journey. Rabbi Wilds, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. So I appreciate you taking time, and I know you have your own podcast, so I have a feeling you're going to be very good at this in handling the interview. So are you ready well, it's, to roll? It's, it, I'm definitely ready to roll, and it's great to be interviewed, um, you know, <laughs> and not being on the other side. But thanks, Jeff. It's a pleasure. All right. So I know we're going to talk a ton about MJE, but before we do that, we like when we have guests on for our listeners just to get to know the person behind the organization first. So let's start at the beginning of your journey and give me a sense of where you were born and raised. So I am a proud Queens boy from Farstills, Queens, and I've uh, been living in the city for the last almost 30 years. But uh, before then, it was always Farstills. And so we have a ton of guests come on who were born secular and had their journey to becoming religious. But how would you describe your family from the beginning? What kind of family were you born into from a Jewish perspective? So Jewishly, I guess you'd call us modern Orthodox. We were kind of poster children, modern Orthodox. My dad went to Yeshiva University in the 1950s. Wow. He should live and be well. He loves YU. I went to YU and my kids. You know, that's kind of who we were. That's kind of our educational milieu in which we were raised. Um, I went to the Queens Jewish Center in Forest Hills, which some people from the OU might be aware. Rabbi Joseph Grumblatt was the rabbi there for many, many years. He was uh, very, very well respected. Uh, he was sort of like a rabbi's rabbi. He had a huge influence on me. So my Forest Hills, Queens upbringing was a big part of my Judaism because my main mentor was Rabbi Joseph Grimblatt of Blessed Memory. So was your circle of friends mostly religious or did you have the spectrum of friends, non-Jews or secular Jews? Like who did you grow up with around you? I grew up mostly around religious, um, mostly modern Orthodox. Some friends who were conservative and reform, who I was buddies with in the neighborhood. I grew up across the street from a public high school where my mother of Blessed Memory went, Forestals High, and I had some friends there, but my main clique, my main chevre, if you will, were pretty much similar along the lines of myself. So I wonder if as a kid, knowing that later in the interview, we're going to get into MJE and your cure of work, did you have thoughts on, I'm living this life, but I know there's people who aren't yet religious and what it means to be secular versus religious, even before you got into that world for a career? I think the, there were probably two influences that got me sort of out of my little bubble. One was my father, who's an immigration attorney, and every night he'd come home with another incredible story of somebody from some other part of the world that he helped and brought to the United States, Jew, non-Jew. And also I got involved with NCSY, which really opened up and introduced me to people my own age or a little younger that were not from the same kind of religious background that I was blessed with. But did you think at a young age that Kirov could be in your future? You weren't even thinking that no, way as you were getting no. some of this exposure. No, I, I, as a young, as a kid, you know, I was into drums, I was into basketball, and I thought I'd probably just be a lawyer like my dad. Right. So you hear that story a lot. I, I call it kind of the parental footprint of what you grow up seeing your parents do has this huge influence on career choices you might make. So as you were getting into the teen years, you were thinking... Oh, my dad's a lawyer. It seems to be working out well. I'm probably going to pursue the same path. Yeah, I, I wanted to find my own unique, what sort of spoke to me within the law. 
but I was surrounded by attorneys and my, my older brother went to law school, my sister-in-law, my cousins were lawyers and they weren't just Joju lawyers either, so to speak. They were really, <laughs> my dad was pretty prominent. He had some very famous clients, John Lennon and that ilk. Um, my brother to this day represents a lot of high profile celebrities. You know, we were also raised very sort of civic minded. I worked for my congressman, Gary Ackerman from Queens. And I also worked for uh, Senator uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who I was a huge fan of. We were taught from a young age that it was a blessing for a Jew to be raised in America and you had to give back. So I would say that my interest in outreach wasn't really about outreach per se. It was, what are you going to do to give back? Because that's the kind of life I saw my dad living and a lot of other people around me. So then what happened as you got closer to the college years? Like, where, where did you go and what did you major in as you started thinking about what you'd be doing for a living post-college? So when I got to college, I was most interested in psychology and philosophy. And I became a psych major. I then thought, maybe I wouldn't be a lawyer at this point. Maybe I'll get a doctorate in psychology, try to help people. And that actually went on for a good couple of years until it was time to graduate and actually figure out what I was going to do. Am I going to go to law school? Am I going to do this? Am I going to do that? I got very sucked into Soviet Jewry, and I think that changed everything for me. I used to go on these rallies. I used to go on these lobby trips to Washington. I don't know if you remember this triple SJ, student struggle to free Soviet Jews. That changed my life. And that, I started studying international relations in Yeshiva University, and now I was interested in getting a law degree, but trying to use it for international law, human rights, specifically to deal with our Soviet brethren captured or caught behind the Iron Curtain. So related to that, and you mentioned uh, normally you're the podcast host, but because I am, I had to do the research for the interview, not you. And so I came across this story about you, your dad, and Ed Koch, and how that connects to the Soviet Union. So can you share that story? Yeah, that was an unbelievable day. My dad was instrumental in bringing a woman, Carmela Raiz, in from the former Soviet Union. She was a cellist for the Lithuanian Philharmonic. She became a balats tshuva. She became religious in Russia. She and her husband, Vladimir, he changed his name to Zev, and they had two sons. And they tried for 25 years to get out. They were refuseniks. They were denied the right to emigrate, and they wanted to go to Israel. As a last-ditch effort, she said she would come to America and lobby Congress. My dad got her a six-month visa to come to the United States, lobby Congress with her son. And my father had a relationship with Ed Koch, who was the mayor at the time, and he asked for a press conference at Gracie Mansion. And this was unbelievable. <laughs> there, Koch was sitting with my dad, Carmela, and her 10-year-old son with his big black velvet yarmulke. And Koch starts asking questions. If you remember Koch, like he was a real personality, he starts asking questions, not to Carmela, who was very articulate, but to her son, Moshe. And he asks, he says, Moshe, what's your name? <laughs> he didn't know Moshe yet. <laughs> he was expecting a Russian name. And he said, Moshe. He says, oh, okay, that's your Hebrew name. What's your Russian name? And he says, Moshe. And he says, listen, you know, I'm, I'm also Jewish. And my English name is Edward. And my Jewish name is Isaac. So what's your Russian name? And he repeats, Moshe. Okay, Moshe, what's your favorite subject to study in school? And Moshe looks back and he says, Torah. He says, Torah, they teach you Torah in school? He says, no, we're not allowed to learn Torah. So who teaches you Torah, Katja asks. 
my father, he teaches me Torah. And he's going back and forth. And then he says, you know, going back to your name, Moses, you know, he was a great Jewish leader. Do you know how you came to be named after him? And then his mother, Carmela, chimed in and said, Mr. Mayor, if it's okay, I'd like to answer that question on behalf of my son. And she said, and I will never forget this moment, she said, 13 years ago, Vladimir and I got married. And we said that if God ever blessed us with a son, we would name him Moshe and he would take us out of this Egypt. And, wow. and with that, the, <laughs> the, and by the way, the room was filled with photographers and journalists and it was like feeling like you can make a difference in another person's life. It just filled me in such a powerful way. So whatever it is I was going to do, and I ended up, I mean, this is going to sound crazy. I, I became infatuated with everything Russian. I wanted to learn how to speak Russian. I wanted to study Sovietology and I applied and I got accepted to Columbia School of International Affairs, the Harriman Institute for Soviet Studies. And I ended up doing that for the next five years of my life, getting that master's and a law degree from Cardoza. I, I created a joint program between the two schools and I was going to save Soviet Jews. That was going to be my, my mission. But at the introduction, I called you Rabbi Mark Wilde. So there must have been a turn or a pivot at some point because everything you just described doesn't sound like someone who's going to become a rabbi. So what happens along that journey that it, it changes a little bit? So it changed, number one, because our Soviet brethren got out. <laughs> and my whole <laughs> Mission I mean, accomplished. I mean, it sounds like, well, yeah, I'd love to believe I had something to do with that. But I'll be perfectly honest. I felt like, what just happened? What, what is, I understood we were pushing for this. But the Iron Curtain fell, you know, if you remember Gorbachev and Glasnost and Perestroika and people get like, thank you very much, but I just spent five years in school, a ton of <laughs> tuition money to become a Sovietologist, and now they're all gone. And I, I used to work for the Coalition to Free Soviet Jews, and they were like, well, we're all focused on resettlement work now because we don't have to lobby Congress anymore. I was like, okay, great. Now, in terms of the rabbinate, and this is very common even at YU today, and I teach in the rabbinical school at Yeshiva University, but there were a lot of guys who went to law school in particular who also were getting smicha. I was one of them. I had no interest in being a rabbi, but I wanted to learn. I was very devoted to my teacher, Raparnas, he should live and be well. I was a student of his for many years, and I wanted to stay on longer in his shir, but YU didn't let you float around. You had to be in a program. So I did the Chavar program, and then I was done with that. The only thing left was smicha. But it was not because I was interested in becoming a rabbi. What ended up happening was when I got to my fourth year, you have to do this apprenticeship like a shimush, like an internship. I wasn't going to do it. Those were the people who were really going into the rabbinate. I was going to, I don't know what I was going to do at this point, but it wasn't going to be the rabbinate. And here's what happened. My um, high school principal convinced me. He says, Mark, you're three years into a four-year program. Just finish it up. Get an internship. You can do it in Queens where you live. I know you're into outreach a little. I was already doing a little NCSY. Now, the reason I was doing NCSY, to be perfectly honest, was because those were the only gigs my band could get. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds terrible. And we, we got two gigs. The 92nd Street Y would have us played for disabled individuals at the 92nd Street Y and NCSY. NCSY was like hiring us left and right. And I wasn't really involved in the outreach. I was just sort of the drummer. But I was already starting to see outreach before me with high school kids. And then somebody said, if you want to get smicha, why you? You want to just finish it up. Start a beginner service 
in your shul. You're already living in Queens. I was single. I was still living in the Heights, in Washington Heights, but, you know, still back and forth in my home from Forest Hills. So I, um, I found out about this guy, Effie Buchwald, the founder of the National Jewish Outreach Program. He was running a beginner service at Lincoln Square, and he had a videotape. I remember it was a Betamax videotape. I'm really dating myself. And <laughs> Just a little I, bit. I got the video. I went to the fifth floor of the Wayu Library, and I popped it in. It was almost three hours. And I have to tell you, I was in love. I was watching this. I was like, this looks, this looks so interesting. I'd love to do this. I took notes. I called this Rabbi Buchwald, and I said, I've got a rabbinic internship requirement I want to fulfill. Can I be one of your sponsored, well, you know, end job beginner services? And he says, you just need a supervising rabbi. I called Rabbi Grimblatt. I said, would you supervise me to do this? He said, of course. And I started it. I plastered, if, if you know Forest Hills, uh, Yellowstone Boulevard, 108th Street, and Queens Boulevard with flyers. I got the flyer from Enjop. I futzed around with it myself. And I just started running off literally thousands of copies. And I, I scotch taped it all over the, the neighborhood. And I, and I picked a, a date. And I'll never forget that fateful Saturday morning. Eight people showed up. I can give you their names right now if you want. It's <laughs> a long time ago. This is probably 1991, 1992. And I was in love again. I just loved presenting Judaism. I loved learning with these students. They were all primarily in their 20s, 30s, some 40s and 50s. It was like all ages. People from the neighborhood. We had a lot of Russian Jews in the neighborhood, but there weren't too many Russians. It was mostly Americans and a couple of Russians. And then every Saturday, just kept doing it. And it grew to 15 people, to 18, to 20. Pretty soon I had 25, 30 people coming every week. And then I started teaching some classes during the week, Hebrew crash course, basic Judaism class. And that's really how I sort of entered this whole thing. And it just kept growing. And I ran that program for the next three years, and I, I absolutely loved it. Okay, so then how did that experience transition into this idea that this is going to be my life beyond what I'm doing right now? Right, so I, at that point, I was like, you know, there's no way to really sort of earn a living doing this, <laughs> Okay. But I got two calls from two rabbis. One was from Rabbi J.J. Schachter, who I knew of. And he called me, asked if I would teach a basic Judaism class at the Jewish Center. Not for members of the shul. He says, I'm, lit, I'm here on West 86th Street. We're in the, this hub of all of these young Jewish people who are not involved. Would you like to come and teach a class at the Jewish Center? And then I got recruited from Rabbi Alan Schwartz also to do some outreach. In other words, they both, I guess, heard what I was doing in Queens and were interested in me coming to Manhattan to do this. And I ended up being hired by Rabbi Schwartz, first as his outreach director and then ultimately as his assistant rabbi, where I served from 93 to 95. And I was teaching this course at the same time at the Jewish Center for Rabbi Schachter. It was called Judaism in the Contemporary World. You've extended it now a couple of years doing this, a few years doing that. Are you starting to see that this could be a career because you keep saying yes to these different experiences? Are you starting to see a road where this could become your thing? I was hoping, but based on what I was being paid, I mean, I'm sorry to be so sort of talkless about this, you know, but based on what I was being paid to teach these classes or be, it didn't seem necessarily doable as an outreach. Now, I got a call then from Rabbi Haskell Lukstein, who should live and be well, who was one of my mentors and teachers. 
asking if I would like to try out to be assistant rabbi KJ on the east side and also be a teacher in Ramaz. And I was a little reticent. I was flattered by the phone call, but I was a little reticent because if I was not going to follow my law career, international affairs, and do something, okay, there weren't Soviet Jews to save anymore, but something along those lines, then I'm going to go into the regular rabbinate, and that's kind of what that gig was. So I took the gig, and I, I was at OZ for two years. I taught this class at the Jewish Center. By the way, that's how I met my wife, sidebar. She came to the class. I did not ask her out while she was in the class. That's below industry standard. I waited for her to be not in the class anymore, and then I asked her out, fine. So now I'm married, and I go to the east side, and now I realize what happened. I needed to earn a decent living, so I took a regular rabbi gig. Nothing wrong with being a regular rabbi. It was great, but I had a nice little opportunity at the end of Musaf, Chazor Sashatz, I left the main synagogue and walked up three flights to George Rohr's beginner service at KJ, which had been in place already for almost 20 years. And he was doing what I did at the Queens Jewish Center. It was just like I felt like I was with my people. I would hang out with them, and my wife and I would invite people home. And I, and I think to this day that that's the most powerful outreach thing you can do. Rabbi Riskin, another one of my teachers, famously said that for the price of a chicken, you can save a Jew. <laughs> and and it's, it's the greatest Jewism, because with all the fancy, sophisticated, innovative programs, inviting uh, somebody to your home for a Shabbat meal, is nothing like it. You know, and I did that for two years, and it was like a two-year stint at KJ, and now I was at a real crossroads. Now I'm 30 years old, married with a son, and I don't know what I'm doing. Am I going to go back into my dad's firm? But this gentleman, George, I called him up for advice. And I did not call him for money. I really called him for advice because he's a very smart, wise person. And I said, George, look, I can go into my dad's firm and branch out and do international law like I've trained to do. Or I was thinking, I'd done this outreach work on the west side at OZ, Jewish Center a little. Maybe I could try my hand at creating an organization, but I'm not really sure. And I'd have to raise money, and I've never done that before. So George heard it. We were on the phone. I remember I called him from a wedding. It was a payphone. And um, <laughs> basically, I, I, uh, he said, give me a couple of days. He called me back, and he said, I think you should start an organization. And I'm happy to contribute. And he told me the number. But he said to me, and this is what made the decision really difficult. He said, Rabbi, I'm only going to give you the money and I'm only going to support this if you do it full time. No more law, no more dabbling in this, no more little rabbi thing here, a little Soviet troop, but, 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 da, da, da. If you take this, you're, you're leaving everything else and you're only doing this. Somebody was giving me the chance to actually do this. Give me a sense of the, the beginning years of how it started to build and you started to see this could really be something. Yeah, I mean, kol hatchalot kashot is definitely an appropriate phrase. All beginnings are tough. It, it was hard establishing myself. And the question I always got was, you know, who, who are you? Like, who the heck is Mark Wilds? Like Aisha Torah or Sameach, you know. But that was difficult in the beginning, you know, when people, like, what, what are you doing, what you're doing? Like, why do we even need you kind of thing? I... I'm not sure that people were really meant that. That's kind of what I felt maybe a little. I don't know, maybe I was a little insecure about it. 
And it was not easy raising the money because the first year or two, you're basically raising money for a dream. It's not like I have what to show. I go to a donor today. I bring with me, I literally bring pictures of students whose lives have been transformed for years, who are now celebrating their children's bar mitzvot, sending their kids to Jewish day schools, and, and they become models, you know, modern Orthodox citizens in their own respective communities. Like, I can blow a donor away with accomplishments. I had nothing to show for. What I needed were people who believed in me and thought I could do it. And um, so it was a small group of people in the beginning, and thankfully it's expanded. You know, and I, it's 23 years later, I, um, if every year I can't look back and say, look at that new group of people that is now part of the Jewish community. X amount of them have actually become Bali Tshuva. X amount of them maybe didn't become observant, but now these, these guys only date Jewish girls or they're now they're going to Israel or they're doing this Jewish. I have a clear-cut way of, of seeing impact. And you, so you mentioned this word impact. And so that made me think about success measures and metrics, you know, people who come from the business world. And I've had some other people on who work in Kirov, and I've asked this question of them. So I want to get your thoughts on it, this idea of how you really do measure success. And is it the person marrying somebody Jewish? Mm -hmm. Is it someone who had no involvement, who's now coming to classes regularly? Mm -hmm. Is it becoming religious? Yes. What do you define as anything? (laughs) No, I mean, I really think it depends on the person. There are people who I've met who I really feel could go a long way spiritually, religiously. I've had students who have become serious Torah scholars and teachers. And I've had other students who I've been proud that they married Jewish. Even if they decided not to send their kids to day school, I'm not happy about that, but we've given them something. I really think it depends on the person. I don't think it's wise for us to come up with an objective standard and measure of success when, when you try to apply that on the ground to actual real people and their lives. It just doesn't work that way. Now, I can say, and I do have a goal, of trying to have at least 12 to 15 MGE participants every year who become Bali Chuva. Mm-hmm. But if you ask me, is that the total measure for MGE success, those 12 to 15 people, I would say absolutely not. Because we cannot underestimate the value of somebody becoming more connected Jewishly, even if they don't become observant. Sometimes somebody will go through MGE, they're in their 20s and 30s, and it doesn't click religiously. And when they have their third son, or God forbid, a parent dies, and they want to start saying Kaddish, and they go to shul, you have planted a seed. So it, it would be very limiting of us to, in my opinion, to measure and gauge success so narrowly to say it's, it's just a question, how many Bali Chuva do you have? Now, I'll tell you a story quickly. Just There was a woman, I remember, very bright. She graduated from Yale undergrad, and she was living in the city. And she was coming to MJ for about six or seven months. My wife and I became not close with her, but friendly enough that when she stopped coming... I felt it was okay to call her up and just say, hey, where you been? Hope everything's okay. So I called her up and I got together with her. We met in Starbucks, I remember. And she said, I said, I just want to make sure everything's okay. We haven't seen you. She goes, yeah, I, you know, I came for a few months and I realized that I'm not interested in being religious. I said, okay, I'm sorry to hear that, but I, I hear you. I respect that. But you didn't answer my question. Where have you been? Well, Rabbi, I just naturally assumed that if I'm not going to become Orthodox, I'm not going to become, you know, Sabbath observant, then like, why do I need to keep coming? And I asked her, I said, this is, this is very distressing to me to hear this, honestly. 
Is there anything I or anyone on my staff ever said, implied that it's only for people who want to become religious? The minion, we have a beginner's minion on Shabbos. We have classes, we have retreats. She goes, no, not at all. I felt so comfortable. I just assumed. And when I, when I heard that, I've gone out of my way on all of our events because think about this for a minute. How awesome would it be if there was a community for people who are not Orthodox, who had no intention of becoming Orthodox, but they still wanted some Yiddishkeit in their life for them to feel comfortable continuing to come. If we measure success in such a limited way, it's just very unrealistic to think we're not going to somehow project that. They're not going to get a sense of that a little. They're smart people. I'm told that most Orthodox synagogues in America were not simply places for Orthodox Jews. You know, maybe 50, 60, 70% of members of Orthodox Jews were themselves Orthodox. But it was a place where people would come because they affiliated with Orthodox, even if they weren't personally observant. And I just, I wanted MJ to be that place. I wanted MJ to be a place where somebody could grow religiously and become a Baal Tshuva, but also be a warm and inviting place for someone who has no intention of becoming religious, but wants to be more involved. And once you get somebody coming on a regular basis, you never know what's going to happen then. And did she come back? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I was <laughs> waiting did. for the punchline yeah, of the story. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> she came back, yeah. Yeah, she's awesome. So I want to ask you about another side of this. Um, you and I didn't discuss this before the interview, but the this idea that I wasn't raised religious, so I didn't have the privilege of coming from an Orthodox home. And so my first exposure was to a beginner's class with Rabbi Yudin. You know, the, he's at Shomri Torah in Fairlawn. He's emeritus now. But when I first started going to the class... My parents loved it. They said, that's great. You know, you're going to learn a little bit more about Judaism. You're going to get some of the basics, things that you didn't get as a child. When the conversation shifted from a beginner's class to I'm actually thinking of taking on some of the things that I'm learning, my parents' perspective changed 180. They're like, we didn't think you were going to this class to change anything about your life. So I'm guessing that you have all these young people that you inspire. You get them turned on. There must be a point where if it starts progressing... They come to you and say, I just had a tricky conversation with my mom. Can you help me navigate this? Yeah, listen, I imagine that was hard for you. And, and every parent is different. Some parents are thrilled that their kids are becoming more observant, not because they believe in Torah so much, but because they want to, they want to see their kids married and they want to see grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're all the same in that regard. <laughs> okay, Every parent wants to see grandchildren and they know that if they get a little more closer to Yiddishkeit, that probably means they're going to get closer to getting married and having kids. So so you have parents like that. Then you have other parents who are like, whoa, they literally view it as a slap in the face. We raised you conservative. We raised you reform. We actually believe in this path and, those, and, and have certain negative associations with orthodoxy and with orthodox Jews. I mean, I had a woman, this is back in the Queens Jewish Center, no matter what topic I was teaching, she got up at the end towards the end would I raise her hand and I knew what she was. My husband was cheated by a Hasidic Orthodox Jew. And it was like, it didn't matter. I could be talking about keeping kosher, Shabbat. She had to bring it up every single class. So unfortunately, people have had negative experiences or negative associations and they now are bringing some religious observance back home and you have to help them, guide them. And it's not simple. And it's an up and down experience. I remember years ago, I asked Rav Shechter this, Rav Herschel Shechter from Yeshiva University. I always have this Passover. 
Passover is, you know, we say Chag Kasher Vesameach, like have a kosher Pesach, because there's so many halachot, so many rules. Passover is the, is the holiday that so many parents who are not observant want to see their kids home for the Seder. Some of, them, some of my students, they have loaves of bread on the table, okay? They're, the food is not kosher. And like, what do you do? You're going to tell them, don't go home, stay with us at MGE so you can do it. Now, it depends. Um, every case is different. But I once asked Rav to this, and I said, what do you do? What do, you, what do I tell a student? who is going back and the food is not kosher. I mean, do, do you think I should tell him not to go home? And he said, uh, yeah, you can't tell him not to go home. And I said, well, what about the food? And he said, tell him to eat uh, a lot of matzah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. He goes, tell him to eat a lot of matzah. As you're telling me this story, it's reminding me that one of the things that turned my parents a little bit as I said to them, you know, there's a lot of things I could have been exploring in my 20s. It could have been alcohol. Right, right. It could have been So, I mean, drugs, Jeff, I mean, Jeff did, that, did that work? Did that conversation, how did that go? I mean... I said to them, all I'm doing is exploring on a deeper level the very same religion you raised me on. Right, right. And compare that to a lot of the other directions I could have gone. But truth be told, they came around once they were grandkids. So I go. think you were onto something saying that because then they saw the community side of the life that I was living and they right. really started to fall in love with it. Right. It, it is not easy. And what I often experience is initially with a lot of MJE participants who are becoming observant, they've got sort of like two Judaisms, the one they practice at MJE and then the one they practice at home. A lot of them just can't handle going home and sitting there at the table and I mean, my, I guess the stronger ones are able to eat on their paper plate, order in their food from some other place, or double wrap it in their parents' you know, oven. But others, you know, at least at some point, might cave in a bit to come back later. It's very hard. It's very hard. And, and listen, it's not simple because there is this mitzvah called kibur avahim, uh, honoring parents. You can't just blow your parents off. And that's why I always tell my students that you need to be home for Thanksgiving, you need to be home for New Year's. Any of those other family moments that your parents value that are not difficult for you, to, you need to bend over backwards because if you're not going to go home for Pesach because it's too complicated, then try to figure out another way of maintaining the relationship. I'm a big believer, and I saw this with my wife and my in-laws of blessed memory. You know, my wife is also not from a, a religious background, and and she she became, you know, a pretty religious young woman, and... and it actually brought her closer to her parents. I saw her. We, and we had, and I tell this to my students, I've had some of the, the most beautiful, unfortunately, n neither of them are alive anymore, but for like 20 years, I had some of my best Shabbatot in my in-law's home, which was not a kosher home, which was not a home where they observed Shabbat. But my mother-in-law, blessed memory, would kosher the... We would kosher the oven. She had the Mark and Jill pots and pans. She would cook everything on that because she insisted on it being. And it was complicated, but we did it. And we just had beautiful Shabbatot. So I tell my students all the time that, because I think that's really why parents get antagonistic. Because parents start getting nervous that these new religious observances, and I don't know if, you, if that's what was going on with your parents, Jeff, but parents are getting nervous that this is going to divide them. This is going to separate them. Yeah, well, I saw with, with my parents, and I've given this advice now to other people who have come along and are becoming religious, and they come to me for advice because I'm further along in the journey. And I always tell them, 
if anything about this is estranging you from your parents, then the approach is not right. Like that, that should not be the end result that you're religious and you don't talk to your parents. Like something has, has gone wrong along the way. And so I always just tried to bend over any way that I could be flexible on anything besides eating non-kosher food, right? All the other ways that I could be flexible, I'll come to you. We'll do something that doesn't involve food. So there were always ways to like keep the relationship going until they came around to what I was doing and we could reconnect with religion being part of the conversation. It's so important and it's very important that we get that message out there to all of the parents of kids who are exploring their Judaism. Because, and, I, and the reason I keep harping on my wife's example is because they actually got closer. My wife's becoming observant helped her accept certain things about her relationship with her family that I believe enabled them to be closer. And my kids, they knew one set of grandparents were observant, one, one was not, but it didn't matter. They, it, they were just as close. They were just as close with, with my wife's parents as they were with, with my side. And I, and I think that's important. I think if parents knew that and that that could be, and that really is the norm, that should be the norm, then maybe they wouldn't be so, I don't know, have such issues. All right. So I'm going to ask you some super fast questions to wrap things up. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So first, for someone who's just starting out on their journey, what's a book that you'd recommend them reading? And this is your opportunity to plug your own books if you think that's the best answer also. Um, I love This Is My God by Herman Woke. It's an oldie but goodie. Anything written by Aryeh Kaplan, grab it and read it, whether it's the more Kabbalah stuff or, or the more basic stuff. And I do think that my first book, Beyond the Instant, <laughs> I'm picking it up, um, which is basically Jewish wisdom for happiness uh, in a very sort of fast-paced social media world. I think that's what a lot of people are struggling with. And I have 10 articles of Torah that really relate to how to find happiness in such a crazy world. So those are some of the books. I also have the 40-day challenge that I did for Elulzman, which is going to come out soon again. So let's just take a, a quick pause and you can talk about that book just for a moment of the 40-day challenge and what you're challenging people to do. Oh, so the 40-day challenge I put out last year, but if you haven't done it, I really think it's a great way to take yourself from the summer to the high holidays. A lot of people really struggle. How do you go from like the, the whole feel of the summer, which is a little more cavalier, to the seriousness of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? So we have 40 days. And what I did was I created a book where a little Torah teaching based on a WhatsApp message that I put out two years ago that you can read. So it's like literally three to five minutes dedication to this for the 40 days of Rosh Chodesh Elul all the way till Yom Kippur. So that by the time you're at Yom Kippur, you're in another place spiritually, and you can do it together with a WhatsApp. But it's a really great, quick way of getting yourself a little inspired every day for the 40 days leading up to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Uh, and it's going to be launched in a couple of weeks. Got it. Very good. So continuing with the lightning round, we've just been talking about books. How about shears or things people can listen to online? Who's someone that you think people should tap into that they could get inspired by? Wow. We're a big podcast family. Uh, besides, <laughs> besides my own po podcast, Wildscast, I really try to interview people whose message I want to get out there. So I just interviewed Y.Y. Jacobson. And before that, I, I did a whole three-part series on science and religion where I had um, three cosmologists who are observant Jews and can help us reconcile. So the Wildscast, I would say, is one 
I'm a big Jordan Peterson fan. I really, I really like listening to his stuff. My computer science son is obsessed with his, with his stuff. Um, my good friend Ephraim Goldberg, behind the beam, I was, I was a guest on that. I listened to that. I think Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg's Torah is amazing. I think those are three like nice ideas. I also, I just interviewed Y.Y. Jacobson, and I'm just really blown away by, by him. I will tell you something else. He doesn't have a podcast, though, but he's written some incredible books, and that is Chaim Miller. And I happen to know him. I interviewed him. Chaim Miller translated the Tanya brilliantly, and he wrote a great biography on the Rebbe, and all of his stuff is just incredible. I know, I know that's a book. That was your other question. <laughs> it's Sorry. fine. We'll, we'll allow it. <laughs> all right, so last question. Given MJE is in New York City, what's one of the best things about being Jewish in New York City today? Besides the ability to frequent MJE, I mean, I don't know what else is there. <laughs> I mean, that's basically it. Yeah, what else is important? People thought during COVID, this is it. New York's, New York's had its day, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But I just, I love the energy. There's a certain excitement, energy. My students who, when they leave New York, tell me they get into this sort of couch potato. There's a, there's a culture. There's a reason why so many Bali Truva develop in Manhattan. It's not just because there's so many less affiliated Jews in the city. It's true. But there's a certain energy in Manhattan that I've been working off of for the last 20-something years where people go to a lecture, they go to a museum, they go to events. They, they have less room. <laughs> Their apartments right. are small. It's not as conducive to want to stay home as much. Nobody buys plush couches for their apartments in the city, <laughs> right? Because there's just not enough room for those cushions, right? right. If you have a house in the burbs, you got, you got the plush couch. So, so that energy is incredible. And it thankfully has come back, I think, since covid the museums, the, there's like an interest in learning more, in growing, whether it's culturally, it's the arts, it's Torah, it's Yiddishkeit. I don't want to be the same. I don't want to plateau. And one of my teachers used to say, there's only two directions you can take in your Judaism. You can go up, you can go down. We like to think I'm going to stay the same. But that is just another way of descending. If you're not growing in a certain kind of way, then unfortunately we're descending. And Manhattan has that energy to it. And we try to tap into that. Beautifully said. And Rabbi Wilds, you got yourself out of the lightning round. I want to thank you for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. It was an honor, Jeff. Thank you so much. It was a really enjoyable conversation. It's an honor. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.